All right. Um, we are going to now begin our treatment of the fall of man and sin by looking at what the modernized version of our confession states about it. However, I'm also going to cover what the corresponding section of the Savoy Declaration of 1658, which would be the Congregationalist Confession, I'm going to cover what it says as well, and hopefully you'll see why shortly. But first, let's look at uh, chapter 6, section 1 in our confession. <clears throat> it says, God created humanity upright and perfect. He gave them a righteous law that would have led to life if they had kept it, but threatened death if they broke it. Yet they did not remain for long in this position of honor. Satan used the craftiness of the serpent to seduce Eve, who then seduced Adam. Adam acted without any outside compulsion and deliberately transgressed the law of their creation and the command given to them by eating the forbidden fruit. God was pleased in keeping with his wise and holy counsel to permit this act because he had purposed to direct it for his own glory. Now, <clears throat> the corresponding section of the Savoy Declaration reads as follows. It says, God having made a covenant of works and life. Thereupon, with our first parents and all their posterity in them, they being seduced by the subtility and temptation of Satan, did willfully transgress the law of their creation and break the covenant in eating the forbidden fruit. So you will notice that the Savoy makes explicit what is only implied in the 1689 Baptist Confession, Namely, that the transaction between God and Adam and his posterity in him as covenant head, well, it was exactly that. It was covenantal. Um, when we look at the 1689 Confession, we see the elements of this covenant of works. There was a righteous law of the covenant given, which was composed of the law of their creation and the special command or ordinance given that they were forbidden from eating the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. That is, they were given the moral law, as later summarized in the Ten Commandments, and they were given a special ordinance of that covenant, which was specifically, do not eat of this specific tree. There was the reward of life for keeping the covenant and the penalty of death for breaking it. And looking ahead to section 3 uh, in this same chapter, we see Adam was chosen as the federal head or representative for both his wife and his posterity, as is common with biblical covenants. And so all the elements of a covenant are present even if that word is never used. I also want to make mention of where the Westminster Confession covers this, which is actually not in chapter 7. It's in ch I mean, chapter 6 is in chapter 7 of Westminster. Um, it's chapter 7, section 2, but I also want to read that. It says, The first covenant made with man was a covenant of works, wherein life was promised to Adam and in him to his posterity upon condition of perfect and personal obedience. Interestingly, the primary passage from which we derive this doctrine of a covenant of works, like the 1689 Confession, never uses the word covenant in it. However, I want to look at this, um, this specifically this passage, to see that the elements of the covenant are present. So with that, let's turn to Genesis chapter 2. This is going to be a long passage. Um, we're going to start 
in verse 4, and we're going to go through the end of chapter 3. So bear with me, it's a lot of reading, but um, we're going to be looking for the elements of a covenant. And after I read it, of course, I'm going to talk about it a little bit too. So starting in Genesis 2, verse 4, and then we'll just go through the end of uh, chapter 3. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created, in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. When no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground, and a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground. Okay, before we get into this next part, notice the order of events. That will be important later. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden and in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is the Pishon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Havilah, and where there is gold. And the gold of that land is good, but Dalium and onyx stone are there. The name of the second river is the Gihon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. And the name of the third river is the Tigris, which flows east of Assyria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat it, or eat of it, you shall surely die. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens, and to every beast of the field. But for Adam there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Okay, something I do want to just briefly mention there. The man gave the name to the woman. He is the head of the woman. Uh, and that's not just practically. That's covenantally. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, 
We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it. God did not say that, or at least it's not recorded that he did, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her. And he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid, because I was naked, and I hid myself. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, And I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife, and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken... For you are dust, and to dust you shall return. The man called his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothing. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him out from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim in a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. And before we go over those elements, one other verse, a single verse that I want to read, Hosea 6. Hold your spot in Genesis. We're going back, but this is relevant to our analysis here. Um, Hosea 6, verse 7. Because the word covenant is not used in Genesis, but it is used here. It says, But like Adam, like Adam, they transgressed the covenant. There they dealt faithlessly with me. So evidently, Adam broke a covenant somewhere, and it is made explicit there. All right, now back to uh, it was Hosea 6, verse 7. All right, so now uh, now that we've gone through that and um, we've seen 
even though it's not in Genesis, later it is made explicit this was a covenantal framework. Um, now let's look at the elements here. The catechism we're using in our Sunday school classes defines a covenant simply as an agreement between two or more parties. You got a question? Yeah. I just asked one question. In yeah. Hosea, mm-hmm. because we didn't read the whole chapter, is the Lord talking to Hosea? So what's going on there is that Israel has transgressed the covenant. Right. Okay. Um, he's saying they, like Adam, before them, transgressed my covenant. Of course, the covenant with Israel and the covenant with Adam are separate covenants. But the point is, they transgressed my covenant, just like Adam. Yeah. Just that's the way it is. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. That's a. That's interesting. I don't think I've ever read that verse with that context. I missed that all these years. Well, interesting. Glad you're learning. <laughs> Thank you. No, um, I'm learning all the time. <laughs> Maybe it's because I forgot it too. <laughs> Pushing out kindergarten these days. Um, where was I? Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Um, okay. So the the catechism we're using um, in Sunday school defines a covenant as an agreement between two or more parties. Um, this is not a bad definition, but I think further explanation is necessary because it could be assumed the two parties are equals, and that is simply not the case. Um, Lewis Burkhoff explains, All God's covenants are of the nature of sovereign dispositions imposed on man. God is absolutely sovereign in his dealings with man and has the perfect right to lay down the conditions which the latter must meet in order to enjoy his favor. So, God unilaterally is putting this in here. It's not that Adam had a choice to accept the terms of condition, uh, terms and conditions of the covenant or not. God said, this is our covenant. You've got to keep it. Certainly, there are several other aspects of a covenant within that framework. The covenantal elements of the covenant of works, as shown in Genesis 2, 4 through 3, 24, are as follows. And perhaps there's more to it, but... These are the ones we're going to look at anyway. So first, we have the contracting parties. That would be God and Adam, and then Adam's seed in him as our covenantal head, according to the flesh. The conditions of the covenant. Very simple. Keep the law of creation, or we also know that as the moral law, and the special ordinance to not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. The rewards and the curses. The reward, eternal life for obedience. The curse, death for disobedience. The purpose of the covenant. Sam Waldron rightly asserts that the purpose of the covenant of works was, quote, to bring Adam to a higher existence than that in which he was created, end quote. It's uh, sort of like this. Um, You might think of it in terms of Adam had a probationary period. Um, He had not earned a positive righteousness But he had also not sinned either. Um, And this was his means of earning eternal life, which of course he did not. But had he kept the covenant, that was his means of earning eternal life. All right, circumstances of the covenant. Now I'm going to extensively quote from Sam Renahan on this point. Um, 
I think his treatment of the Covenants in general is probably the best one of any modern writer. Um, but this is what he has to say as far as the circumstances of the Covenant of Works. First he comments on the location of the covenant, that being in Eden. He says, quote, Eden was not man's initial and natural location. Adam was formed, then Eden was prepared, then Adam was placed in Eden. Remember I told you pay attention to the order of events. The description of Eden tells us the purpose for which Adam was placed there. The garden contained the tree of life, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. That's in verse nine, uh, chapter 2, verse 9. And Adam was placed in this garden to work it and keep it. And that's 2.15. The biblical description of Eden makes it a temple of God's special presence. And that's what I want you to see. There are numerous features of the text of Genesis 2 that mark this out for the reader, such as its eastern designation, its mountaintop location, its rivers, its trees, its precious stones, and its metals as indicators of its temple character. These features do not seem especially significant on their own. But when compared with the way that later scriptures employ the same imagery, one finds that later temples are described in language that evokes the imagery of Eden. Eden was a prototypical temple template from which later scriptures draw their imagery and language, end quote. All right, so that's, that's one circumstance. Next thing, Renahan goes on to make the point that um, Adam functioned as prophet, priest, and king under the covenant of works, which obviously, I hope it's obvious anyway, um, will come back into play when we look at the covenant of grace because... Adam failed in these three offices, whereas the second Adam does not under the covenant of grace. But I'm not going to get ahead of myself. We, we have uh, two chapters to cover that uh, after this, so we're going to focus on this for right now. So Adam as prophet. Uh, Renahan says, quote, In Scripture, receiving the word of the Lord directly constitutes one a prophet. As Moses the prophet received the Levitical commands and relayed them to the Levitical priests. So God declared his decrees in a personal way to Adam, giving him the most fundamental qualification of prophetic commission. End quote. All right, Adam as priest. Again, Renahan says, placed in the garden sanctuary of Eden, a temple of God's presence, Adam was commanded to guard and keep the garden. This temple task must be understood in priestly terms. And then finally, Adam as a king. He says, Adam's role was kingly. Adam was to bring creation to consummation, being fruitful and filling the earth with a holy and God-honoring seed. Back in chapter 1, he said, Be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth, take dominion. He, Adam, was to imitate God as a kingdom builder and attain the rest that awaited completion of such a work. The local reach of Eden was to extend to the universal reach of all creation. Adam was commanded to rule the world, king of a covenanted kingdom. All right, and then finally, the sacraments of the covenant. Now there's debate as some hold that there are as many as four sacraments of this covenant and 
if you were to hold to that, that would be the two trees, each being one sign uh, in and of itself. Then you've got Eden or paradise, um, and then you have the Sabbath. Others hold that there was only one sacrament of this covenant, and that would be the tree of life. There are various views between these extremes and combinations of those four. Burkhoff comments, The last opinion is the most prevalent one and would seem to be the only one to find any support in Scripture. We should not think of the fruit of this tree as magically or medically working immortality in Adam's frame, yet it was in some way connected with the gift of life. In all probability, it must be conceived of as an appointed symbol or seal of life. Consequently, when Adam forfeited the promise, he was debarred from the sign. End quote. So I just threw a lot of information at you in a very short amount of time. So I, why is this important? Um, again, the, uh, the framers of the 1689 Confession didn't even include the terminology covenant of works, at least not here. They do include it in later chapters. I don't fully understand why. But for some reason they did not include it here. So why is this important? Why am I going over this? This is why. The covenant of works provides the context for the covenant of grace whereby the elect are saved in Christ. We see the unfolding of the covenant of grace throughout the remainder of Scripture, following Genesis 3. Thus, the entirety of Scripture and redemptive history hinges upon the existence and affirmation of this covenant of works. If we take out the covenant of works, the covenant of grace makes no sense. That's why I'm going over it. It's very important. So... Two more passages for us to look at this now where this is made a little more explicit and these are in the New Testament. So first we're going to look at Romans 5. And when we look at Romans 5... Um, we're going to be looking at verses 12 through 21. Romans 5, verses 12 through 21. It says, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, okay, so we're all in Adam, naturally, okay? Sin came into the world through that one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men, because all sinned. So he was the first to sin. He, as a sinner, produces sinners. So anyone who is produced through normal generation is by nature a sinner. But then we also sin our own sins. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. But the free gift, so we've got a comparison and contrast. Death came because Adam sinned. That was a covenant of works. That had to be earned. But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through the one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation. 
but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification, and there it is, and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So the covenant headship of Jesus is in the context of the covenant headship of Adam. See that? Adam failed. If we're in Adam, we die. But if we're in Christ, we live forever. Alright. Another passage, or I guess you could call it two passages if you want to, but 1 Corinthians 15. Uh, We're going to look first at verses 21 and 22, and then we'll skip down to 42 through 49. 21 through 22? Yes. That's where we're starting. Skip down to verse 42, and then we'll read through 49. Alright, 1 Corinthians 15, starting in verse 21. For as by a man, one man, came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. And then skipping down to verse uh, 42. He says, So it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown... A natural body, it is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. Thus it is written, The first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam. Take note of that. Because that, I think, even more clearly shows the context for Christ's covenant headship is Adam's covenant headship. Where the first Adam fails, the last Adam does not. He succeeds. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit, but it is not the spiritual that is first, but the natural, and then the spiritual. The first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust. And as is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. So what uh, essentially what happened, and I'm doing a little bit of a spoiler, uh, getting ahead of myself here, but in the covenant of grace, Christ undertakes to keep the covenant of works on our behalf, and that His righteousness is imputed to us and received by faith. 
It is a gracious gift to us, but it is earned by Christ. And so um, I've heard I've heard R.C. Sproul say, and um, in his typical uh, sheepish little grin that he would do when he knew he was about to say something that shocked people, um, he would say. Um, we are saved by works alone. And then he would give a moment for everybody to gasp. And he would say, as long as you understand it's the works of Christ. It's not by our works, it's by His. So, with this covenantal framework in mind, um, we will take up the topic of sin, the fall, and the punishment thereof next time. Do we have any questions or comments before we close? All right, if not, uh, we'll pray and then we'll be dismissed. Father in heaven above, we come to you again in the name of our Lord Jesus and we pray that you would help us as we study um, the fall of man and really why things are the way they are as we look around in a fallen world. I pray that you would help us to really understand this, not just um, not just in an abstract sense, but also in a very practical sense that helps us to understand our experience in day-to-day life. pray also that it would cause us to look to Jesus because we know that our covenant head, Adam, failed to keep your covenant, and likewise we have failed to keep that covenant. We look to our new covenant head, Jesus. And we trust in His righteousness alone. We know that we are joined to Him and we receive that righteousness by faith alone and even that is a gift You give us. And so we pray that You would increase our faith in Him and help us to live in the light of that faith. And it is in His name and for His glory we pray. Amen.